0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Expert Perspectives on Improving Early Recognition of Eosinophilic Esophagitis and Examining the Potential Clinical Utility of Emerging Targeted Therapy. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash FTS860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available.
1: I'd like to welcome the audience to today's show on expert perspectives on improving early recognition of eosinophilic esophagitis and examining the potential clinical utility of emerging targeted therapy. Before I go over a few uh, housekeeping items, I would like to give you an idea of the format of today's show. I'm going to start uh, myself with a few slides on um, an early perspective of EOE. Because EOE is now 30 years old, and because I'm assuming that most of you in the audience have a medical career that's much less than that, much younger than I am, I think it's important to understand EOE from the beginning, and so I'll give you a few items on on the progression of EOE over the past 30 years. I'll also then give you a few concepts that my guest speakers will discuss. Afterwards, we're going to then have... A clinical presentation of several cases with all both of my guests and myself uh, involved, and I'll give you some final concluding remarks um, in the end to take home for your clinical practice. So let's talk candidly over the next few minutes about eosinophilic esophagitis. So remember, EUE is defined as it as a chronic immune antigen mediated esophageal disease, really isolated to the esophagus, characterized by symptoms related to esophageal dysfunction and histologically by eosinophil predominant inflammation. If you look at the basic history of this disease or of eosinophils in the esophagus, in the 1980s several physicians documented that eosinophils could be present when you have reflux esophagitis. Up until then, the early 1990s, people, especially pathologists, thought that if you saw an eosinophil in the esophagus, it was always related to a reflux esophagitis. But in the early 1990s, a few physicians in Europe, Dr. Straumann and Dr. Atwood, began to notice severe esophageal eosinophilia in adults as a problem probably, under, probably not related to reflux esophagitis. In 1995, The diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis related to food allergies was first presented by Kevin Kelly et al. at Johns Hopkins. Even though eosinophilic esophagitis was then becoming recognized in the middle 1990s, it wasn't until 2003 that Naspigen first allowed the uh, discussion of eosinophilic esophagitis to be presented at a formal lecture at the annual meeting. Prior to that there were lots of abstracts and case presentations. In 2004 and 2005, TIGERS was formed, which is basically the International Gastrointestinal Esophageal Researchers Society, which was a group of physicians who were very interested in eosinophilic diseases, especially the esophagus. And then in 2006 and 2007, adult gastroenterologists first became acutely aware of this disease. Again, remember now, it's been about 10 years where pediatric gastroenterologists were defining much of what was going on in this disease. In 2006, the first set of eosinophilic esophagitis guidelines were presented. Another set was presented in 2011, along with a lot of adult um, participants. And then in 2017, the Agree conference was presented, which you'll hear about later in our, in our show. Again, remember the landmark article really that I think of when we talk about classic eosinophilic esophagitis, comes from Johns Hopkins, from, uh, with, from Kevin Kelly et al, with, when they talked about eosinophilic esophagitis attributed to gastroesophageal reflux, but improvement instead with an amino acid-based formula. And this was the first indication that symptoms that were similar to reflux and tissue damage, which was initially thought to be reflux, was instead caused by food-driven antigen-based disease. This is just a quick slide showing you of that study large numbers of eosinophils in a patient four weeks before being given a strict elemental diet and then four weeks after you can see the vast difference in the eosinophil number and the tissue hypercellularity after just four weeks of being given no food allergens. If you look at the epidemiology of EOE the prevalence at this point and this is again now 30 years into this disease It's about one in 2000. It was originally thought to be much, much less 20 to 30 years ago. The incidence is estimated at 10 cases per 100,000 individuals annually. It occurs most often in those aged under 50, but it's definitely present and found even in people over 50, but the disease likely had been going on prior to that age. It's at least three times more common in male patients than in female patients. It's found in two to 7% of patients who undergo endoscopy for any reason and 12 to 23 percent of patients undergoing endoscopy for dysphagia and food impaction. It's the most common cause of bolus food impaction in adults and children. Quickly regarding the EOE pathophysiology, EOE is likely caused by Th2 mediated condition marked by infiltration of eosinophils in the esophagus. It's not that the eosinophil is the only um, problem and only uh, tissue abnormality that's going on, but it's one of the easiest uh, tissue abnormalities that's able to be seen by a pathologist. There are definitely other markers and other abnormalities that are going on, but it's a very easy way for pathologists to see the damage going on in the esophagus. Activated Th2 lymphocytes increase the levels of Th2 cytokines, especially IL-4, IL-5, and IL-13. And if you look at, and all of this results in chronic inflammation, if you look at the schematic below that, on the left you can see that almost always food antigens are the trigger to this disease. And then on the right you can see that when the disease is progressive and chronic, it causes remodeling, loss of tissue elasticity, increased symptoms and ongoing disease if left untreated. And it can occur from a variety of abnormalities in the um, cytokine and um, tissue pathways. You'll hear a lot about how do we diagnose this disease. The gold standard continues to be an endoscopy. If you don't have an endoscopy and obtain tissue, you can't make this diagnosis. The symptoms are so variable both in children and adults that it's hard to make the the diagnosis pathognomonically with symptoms so you need tissue um, specimens to look for eosinophils and not only that but when you're doing an endoscopy you can look for other tissue damage like white exudates or rings or evidence of other fibrotic events. When the original guidelines were were, uh, produced and discussed back in the mid 2005 to 2011 range there were only certain management options available. As I mentioned, the, the study from Johns Hopkins back in the mid-1990s demonstrated that allergens were almost like, always the likely cause for EOE. The problem was that over time, it's difficult to treat every patient with dietary restriction, not only because there could be multiple allergies involved, but it's also difficult for patients, not only kids, but adults, to stay on a diet very long to treat their, their condition. So over time, other medications, especially topical steroids, were utilized to treat the inflammation. So in the adult world, and as part of the AGREE recommendations several years ago, EOE is, is a lot easier to, to, to diagnose than it is in younger adults and children. The reason is, most adults who diagnosed EOE have adults uh, patients who present with either a food impaction or severe dysphagia which limits their food intake or with esophageal strictures or abnormalities and there really aren't that many other causes that, that contribute to esophageal disease especially anatomic esophageal disease when there's eosinophils associated and so the AGREE document that came out several years ago said you don't have to go through a lot of hoops to Um, uh, treat with multiple medicines or different options when you can make the diagnosis pretty easily because of the presentation. On the other hand, in the pediatric world and young adult world, EUE can present in a variety of different ways. Have you ever seen a three-year-old with poor weight gain and feeding difficulty? Well, it's possible they could have EUE. Or a five-year-old with persistent intermittent vomiting, could be reflux, could be EUE a seven-year-old with chronic epigastric pain and regurgitation, an eight-year-old with frequent heartburn that recurs after stopping a PPI or doesn't completely improve on a PPI, a 10-year-old who complains about eating and takes actually one or one and a half hours to get through a meal and is sitting there when everybody else has left the table and says they also have to drink a lot of water. All of these are possible um, early symptoms and potential signs that EOE exists. And finally, the last two are much more common to what is seen in the young or older adult when a 12-year-old complains of episodes of difficulty swallowing, but has no evidence of esophageal narrowing or has evidence of a food impaction with strictures, and those get closer and closer to what we see in the adult world. But all of these things can still be what we talk about uh, as being EOE. I'm going to briefly mention uh, PPIs and esophageal eosinophilia, and we're going to discuss this more at the later portions of this uh, show. In the beginning, the reason why EOE was first thought about was because we had patients who had symptoms that we thought were related to acid reflux, and they were on PPIs, but those PPIs were ineffective at treating esophageal reflux symptoms and ineffective at treating tissue damage. And these patients had significant esophageal eosinophilia despite being treated with a PPI. It was a lot easier back then for pediatric GI people to diagnose this disease because we always took biopsies. And again, early on in the adult world, biopsies of the esophagus, especially when the esophagus did not look that abnormal, were very infrequently performed. But then in the 2000s, adult GI docs began to increase the rate of biopsy um, production and biopsy collection and discovered that patients with eosinophilia in the esophagus, especially those presenting with dysphagia, likely had EUE. For a while, and even now, some people still talk about PPI-REE, which is basically PPI-driven e- esophageal eosinophilia that's responsive to PPIs. And it's hard to know for sure whether or not that is still an antigen-driven disease or acid-driven disease. We've learned a lot about PPIs over the last few years and PPIs, we now know, not only treat acid-based disease but they also have some effect on the pathways to eosinophil production and um, um, damage that's caused by eosinophils in in the tissue. And again we talk about the agreed diagnostic model from 2018 that discusses this in depth. And then finally you'll hear from one of the guests today about possible future medical treatment especially right now there is no FDA accepted medical therapy that's um, available for this disease we use topical steroids or prednisone but we use it as kind of an off-label we use those those drugs as an off-label therapy but hopefully in the next year or so we'll have an FDA approved topical swallowed steroid therapy available But in addition, a lot of progress has been made on biologic therapy, especially uh, drugs that affect or um, uh, inhibit anti-IL-5 production, anti-IL-4, anti-IL-13, anti-eotaxin, and other um, components of the pathway of the eosinophil and atopic disease pathway of the eosinophil inflammatory response. So I'm going to Conclude my initial remarks with kind of a top 10 EOE questions that are still left in pediatrics, and hopefully, we'll answer a lot of these questions over the next uh, hour or so. So, number 10 is that is dietary restriction still an effective therapy? Number nine is should the patient and family be involved in deciding which specific approach and therapy or treatment to use when they have a diagnosis of EOE? Should PPIs still be the first option when treating EOE? Number seven is can you have both EOE and reflux? Can you have two different diseases going on at the same time? Number six is are there any other methods to diagnose EOE besides routine EGD with biopsy? Number five, are symptoms of dysphagia always associated with esophageal narrowing? Number four, should treatment for EOE be chronic and ongoing or can you stop it? Number three, does early diagnosis of EOE Help to prevent complications in the future? Number two, are there different phenotypes of EOE, which will change how you treat them? And number one, will future biologic therapy improve the treatment for EOE um, and have us not have to rely on diet or topical steroids? My first guest is Amal Asad. She is a professor in the Department of Pediatrics in the Division of Allergy and Immunology at the University of Cincinnati and the Cincinnati Children's Hospital. She's the Associate Director of the Division of Allergy and Immunology and the Director of Clinical Services. She's going to talk about why and what is the importance of early diagnosis of EOE.
2: Thank you, Chris. And I thank the organizers to have sought to bring the world of allergy and immunology to the gastroenterologists. Uh, I am very pleased to talk to you today about the importance of early diagnosis of EOE. And why am I saying that? I'm saying that because the EOE signs and symptoms vary between children and adults. They also vary within the children population, uh, between the younger children and the older children. And also the symptoms are vague and can be missed. So the symptoms in the younger children are usually feeding problems, failure to thrive, abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting. Older children may express heartburn and regurgitation. And then, of course, the endoscopic findings will find inflammation, exudates, furs, and edema. That's in case the symptoms were identified and the patients brought to endoscopy for diagnosis. When you get to the adolescents, most commonly, they present with a symptom of esophageal narrowing, which is uh, food being stuck in the esophagus. They may also previously have suffered from dysphagia, and maybe would have expressed heartburn and regurgitation as well. Now, in older adults, heartburn and chest discomfort is much more common. Food impactions, dysphagia, is usually very prominent, and then endoscopic findings in adults is usually more of stenosis which would be wings and strictures and narrowing. This graph represents the progression of the symptoms by age. And as I just mentioned, you can see that feeding disorders predominate in the babies. Vomiting occurs in the toddlers. And this vomiting is very peculiar because the kids would show up Uh, totally unrelated to any meal they also would show up and then go ahead about the the life you know play eat again and it's not distressing to them the abdominal pain becomes really a problem for the school-aged children because they are commonly thought to have abdominal pain because they don't want to go to school or they are just stressed by the school environment And as I said, the dysphagia then predominates in the older children and and adolescents, and eventually we meet the uh, food impactions. And all all in all, because uh, EOE presents much earlier in the children uh, than, than it does in adults, so you can see that the prevalence of these symptoms vary with the population that is being looked at. Another important finding, and this is why uh, allergists and immunologists participate in the uh, in the manage in the diagnosis and management of EoE, is the prevalence of atopy. So uh, you can see here several references and studies that have included uh, numbers from you know the twenties to the 600s and different age groups that show that there is such a high prevalence of asthma, allergic rhinitis, atopic dermatitis, and food allergy among patients with EOE that is so much higher than the prevalence of these disorders, which are also common disorders, actually, in the general population. So the consequences of the inflammation in the eosinophilic esophagitis is that it eventually needs to remodeling. So in the first uh, part of the graph, can see the the, the, the normal uh, yeah. esophagus, which is supposed to be a nice um, tube that is uh, that is very flexible and uh, has motility, and and then you can see that the uh, the lining of the esophagus is nice and flat, and there are no eosinophils there. Now, if you start seeing eosinophilic inflammation, you see a whole lot of eosinophils in the mucosa. And then you also then move to fibrosis, which, which becomes much more common when we get to the adults. And then you can also lead to strictures. And uh, that, of course, uh, leads to the difference in management, which uh, my colleagues will talk about later. And uh, with... With children, we start with medical therapy, whereas in adults, once fibrosis sets in, we move on to, to esophageal dilation. So why is the diagnosis of EOE challenging? It's challenging because those symptoms are very non-specific. and per the guidelines, it's based on symptoms, histology and excluding other causes of EOE uh, particularly after the presence of endoscopic features is supportive of the diagnosis. The presence of the eosinophils in the esophagus may not always be indicative of EOE. There is a differential diagnosis that needs to be considered. And the other uh, important thing to note, and that has been learned by many years of working with this condition, is that the symptoms don't always correlate with the histological tissue Uh, uh, and tissue uh, disease. So so patients may have symptoms that are really very prominent, but then the histology may be mild or the other way around. And also this doesn't eventually help us with correlating the results of treatment with the, the symptoms because the symptoms can be misleading. So this is why Uh, at the end of the day, the diagnosis is made by endoscopy. Although endoscopy is invasive, expensive, requires sedation, particularly in children, it is still the gold standard for the diagnosis of this disorder. And again, early diagnosis is really important because uncontrolled EOE can lead to strictures. 52% of patients with a diagnostic delay had food impactions and 57% 57% had a stricture. And uh, in general, many of the uh, data that's been published by, uh, by ourselves and others have shown that there is at least, on average, a two-year delay before a esophagitis is diagnosed in a symptomatic patient. The feeding dysfunctions, which are, of course, much more relevant for children, occur between 14 and 60% of the patients with EOE, And 21% of these patients also develop failure to thrive, which is not a good thing to have in the beginning of one's life. And again, all these have a negative impact on the quality of life of the parents of young children and the quality of life of adults and teenagers as well. So the uh, diagnostic algorithm uh, by AGREE has shown that clinical presentation suggestive of EOE should be followed by an EGG with biopsy, that then the esophageal asinophilia is quantitated by counting the numbers of asinophils per high power field in multiple high power fields. and, uh, And then they have to be more than 15 asinophils per high power field to make the diagnosis of EOE. And then uh, after that, this, this finding needs to be looked at carefully and evaluating that it's, it's not anything else. So a differential diagnosis needs to be uh, created. And if none of the other conditions that lead to es- es- esophageal eosinophilia exist, for example, systemic eosinophilia and um, hyperesinophilic syndromes, can be associated with with gastrointestinal and esophageal eosinophilia. Once these are excluded, then the diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis or EOE is made. Uh, So here's the question of the PPI responsive EOE or known as PPI-REE and how often this occurs. As you can see here in various uh, studies over the years, This was reported to occur in the pediatric population and in the adult population, whether the studies were retrospective or prospective and whether they were under mice controlled or not. And uh, patients who are treated with PPI uh, and are responsive then are called PPI responsive uh, acidophilic esophagitis. And you can see the prevalence of those patients in the last column. So addressing the PPI diagnostic dilemma, because PPIs are known to treat acid-based disease in patients with symptoms of reflux. Historically, the lack of response to PPI was used to distinguish EOE from uh, gastroesophageal reflux disease or GERD. And both EOE and PPI responsive EE have similar clinic and endoscopic and gene expression features. The other part of the dilemma is some of the patients with EOE are unresponsive to diet or steroids, but then they respond to PPI therapy. Some of these patients who are treated successfully with elimination diets also respond to PPI when those diets are stopped. And then GERD and EOE can exist simultaneously. So there's still a role and a place for PPI therapy, uh, which is quite prominent in this disorder but it's no longer really required to have the um, the PPIs administered initially and first and alone before an endoscopy is done. So because of the high responsive rate to PPI in patients who appear to otherwise have EOE, the... Uh, the clinical endoscopic and histologic, immunologic, and molecular features at baseline don't always appear to distinguish or predict who may respond to a PPI. On the other hand, potential non acid mediated mechanisms like suppress, suppression of TH2 mediated eotaxin release or improving esophageal biofunction uh, can result from PPIs. So the agree guidelines said we don't really have to use, as I said, the PPIs. Uh, in the diagnostic algorithm uh, and it still remains a topic of discussion whether PPI should be used or not. When we move on to elimination diets which as a matter of fact were one of the first um, methods to treat eosinophilic esophagitis. So if foods are, are contributing to the uh, pathology in EOE, then the common food allergens would be the ones that are probably the factors and removing them may be the, the way to treat the, uh, the EOE. So how do we conduct this diet therapy for EOE? So it goes uh, up and then down. So there's a step up approach when uh, a synophilic is diagnosed by acinophils being more than 15 per high power field. So we may start by a two-food elimination diet for six weeks, which as I said, that would be wheat and milk. If that fails, then we can move on to the four-food elimination diet if another endoscopy shows that it has not been effective. And then we can move some more to the six-food elimination diet uh, if the four-food elimination diet fails. Once the endoscopy has shown that there is responsiveness in the tissues uh, and then single food introductions occurs and they could be really up to 42 weeks for food introductions, uh, starting with the introducing, if you ended up with a six food elimination diet, fish, then peanuts, then um, uh, eventually to elim- introduction of um, wheat and milk. So each food is introduced for two to four weeks to assess symptoms, but as well as to assess the tissue responsiveness with endoscopies.
1: Dr. Assad, uh, yes. thank you very much for that uh, in- interesting and informative discussion. Uh, can I ask you a couple of questions um, about your presentation? Please. Um you mentioned that the gold standard of diagnosing EOE is endoscopy, for good and for bad. When you make changes in your diet, how often do you think you need to do an endoscopy? How often do you make people undergo therapeutic endoscopy?
2: Yeah, so it's commonly done, particularly in children, every uh, six weeks, but the patients need to be on the diet for six weeks at least. So two to, two to four, uh, maybe the shortest period, but actually six weeks seems to be more commonly used. And, um, but you have to ascertain that whether it's an elimination diet or an introduction diet, that the diet has been followed.
1: Right, and, and there's really no other perfect way to assess whether or not the diet is working or not working.
2: So unfortunately in this disorder, as I mentioned, the symptoms don't correlate with the histologic response. So patients in general, whatever intervention you've done with them, the symptoms initially improve, but then that doesn't always mean that the histology has improved. And uh, I know that uh, you and my colleague uh, will be talking about, Dr. Peterson will be talking about the need to treat f- until resolution of the histologic abnormalities or the pathology. So that would prevent further uh, problems with fibrosis and strictures, et cetera. So uh, there are many uh, questionnaires that assess the symptomatology, uh, but unfortunately they don't really reflect the histopathology.
1: And just one final question that may not really have come up at all in your discussion, but I know that people are interested. I know there are lots of patients who uh, receive um, oral oral immunotherapy, and there's been some suggestion as to whether or not that sometimes can promote the occurrence of EOE. Do you have anything that you know about that kind of condition?
2: Sure. So I just want to clarify to the audience. So all immunotherapy is done for patients who have, an IgE-mediated food allergy, most commonly it's been done for peanuts and studied. And of course there is a medication that's been approved for that purpose, which is pulphosia. But the, uh, the all immunotherapy is done to increase the threshold of clinical reactivity and decrease the severity if patients are exposed to this food. So, so the patients would have been eliminating peanuts from the diet completely but then when you start to try and make them less sensitive to peanuts, using oral immunotherapy, you actually have to feed them peanuts in gradually increasing amounts. So from from the studies that have been done, there's been some percentage of patients who have developed EOE. It is a low percent. There isn't really an agreement on what that percent is because patients with food allergy are just very heterogeneous populations. But um, it's it's about it's the quoted percentages are somewhere between one two percent to maybe five percent. So at the end, it's it's really um, a matter of benefit versus risk. And some patients and families uh, weigh those risks and prefer that the child would not be that sensitive to peanuts, for example. Uh, and maybe take the risk of, of developing EOE. The other part of this answer and the answer to this question is that uh, the symptoms, again, as we said, are vague. So if a patient is undergoing OIT and develops symptoms of persistent abdominal pain, a kind and of abdominal pain, um, vomiting, um, and... Uh, Difficulty swallowing, etc. Then this should lead to a uh, an investigation of the reason for the symptoms, which might include an EGG and biopsy to confirm that this is EOE and not just reactions to the food allergens.
1: Well, thank you very much again for the terrific um, talk and discussion.
2: You are welcome. Thank you.
1: So. So I'd like to introduce my second guest, uh, Catherine Peterson, who's a professor of medicine uh, and a director of research at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. Um, she's an adult gastroenterologist, and she's going to talk about some of the emerging targeted therapies that might change the management of EOE.
3: Uh, thanks, Chris. I wanted to thank the organizers for inviting me out to give this talk today, and thanks to Chris and Amal for sharing the talk with me and um, thank you to everybody listening today for um, allowing adult gastroenterologist to come out and talk. So I am going to talk today about how will emerging targeted therapies change the management of EOE because as we know, kind of the way we are working with our patients now we do need alternative options for our patients. So when we talk about EOE management, we have to think about what our treatment goals are. And as i so also nicely discussed earlier that it's beyond just symptom control. I mean, we want to control the symptoms, but we know that our patients will accommodate to their symptoms and to the disease. And probably, especially in the pediatric population would be my guess, although I would love to get input from all of you. Um, So besides symptom control, we actually wanna control inflammation. We wanna make sure that we can actually control that eosinophilic inflammation to control the ultimate risk for remodeling. So we don't just look only at symptom improvement, but we also look at histologic improvement and and actually don't only look at histologic improvement as well. The one thing that we take into consideration is that eoe is chronic and so that we do have to think about the fact that it's not just a one and done it's a situation where these patients need to be followed and and often will need long-term management there's definitely a nice management algorithm that eco had published a few years ago where basically i think we all follow this where we have a patient that we have a known diagnosis of eosinophilic esophagitis And then you have your choice. You have your choice of diet therapy or medical therapy, and we'll go over the medical therapy. But right now, the two most commonly used medical therapies are proton pump inhibitors and topical corticosteroids. And then diet therapy, as Amal discussed, we're moving a little bit, maybe more away from the allergy testing directed, but it is an option. And then there's also the empiric elimination. And really the goal is to do the therapies and then look for a response or a non-response. And then based on that, you can switch therapies. If there's a non-response to dietary therapy, you can switch to a medical therapy. But if there's a response, we have to think about maintenance therapy. And interestingly enough, in the adult world, we also always consider esophageal dilation as a way of getting some symptomatic responses in our patients. And probably I would imagine even in the pediatric world, that is, is also a consideration, especially in those adolescents that are coming in with fibrostenosis. So what we talked about earlier is treat to target. So the idea is I always talk to my patients about three domains that we want to really try to treat to for them. We wanna make sure that they feel better, right? We know quality of life is definitely reduced in patients who have eosinophilic esophagitis. So we want them to feel better because if they feel better, then they'll have a better quality of life. But despite feeling better because we know they accommodate all of their symptoms, we want those biopsies to look better. We want that eosinophilia to be reduced to less than 15 eosinophils per high power field. We don't necessarily need total resolution to zero, but we want to show that somebody who started out at 100 eosinophils is now being reduced dramatically. And the goal, Ultimately, FDA guidance is less than six, and the goal, I think, for many people is at least less than 15 per high power field. And in addition to that, we use our endoscopy to guide us. We can look at these EREF scores, we can look at edema, at rings, at exudates, to make sure that everything looks better and that it's improving in our patients so that we know that ultimately they're on the road to recovery. As we talked about earlier, the current EOE treatments so, when we talk about non pharmacologic, our dietary elimination and probably in the pediatric world you definitely use elemental formula more than we do in the old in the adult world the empirical elimination and then the targeted elimination there's still the op- the option of esophageal dilation to give immediate symptom control and I'll talk about that in a little bit. And then on the pharmacologic side there are no FDA approved medications currently for EOE, but what we do use and what there is literature that I will discuss is proton pump inhibitors topical corticosteroids usually more so than systemic although some people have used systemic leukotriene antagonists mast cell stabilizers are options although a lot of the data has not shown a lot of um, benefit to these necessarily in the eosinophilic inflammation and then we can move on to immunomodulators biologics and then small molecules are now currently being studied this is a really busy slide but what i really would like to get across to you all is that Basically, the, the joint task force guidelines with the AGA definitely say that PPIs are better than not using a PPI or a proton pump inhibitor when you think about treating a patient with UE. So it's better to consider using a proton pump inhibitor over no treatment at all. So we could consider that. And as Amal had shown earlier, there is benefit in these subsets of patients when we use proton pump inhibitors. I think one thing that we all discuss is using swallowed topical corticosteroids. And again, as I discussed earlier, nothing's FDA approved yet. But the idea behind this is instead of giving a systemic corticosteroid, we're getting a topical corticosteroid. And I always talk to my patients about saying it's kind of like what we put on our skin, but we're putting it in the esophagus. Um, And really what we've seen with this is there have been multiple randomized controlled trials that have demonstrated the benefits of topical steroids in children and adults. And the most commonly used ones have been budesonide and fluticasone, although there have been some other formulations that have been used. And the goal is really to know the literature and to kind of know how to dose it, um, how to give it to your patients, and then to kind of warn them about some of the potential side effects, especially that of oral candidiasis or esophageal candidiasis. The one thing that probably all of us should just keep in mind when we're talking to our patients is this is topical corticosteroids is the one strong recommendation in these joint task force guidelines. Um, and that. But that also remember that the symptoms may recur if you stop the treatment. So in the pediatric world, we can discuss how all of this goes on. In the adult world, sometimes people treat and keep them on maintenance, and sometimes people treat and then say, go ahead and stop and come back when the symptoms come back. But the issue is we have to remember when we're using these therapies on our patients, it is a chronic disease. So we definitely want to follow these patients. We want to make sure the steroids work, even if they feel better because steroids will also reduce the edema, may not completely get rid of the eosinophilia. So we want to do a follow-up endoscopy six to 12 weeks after we start this therapy on our patients. So again, we discussed, we use fluticasone and budesonide and fluticasone propionate most commonly has been studied in the, in the form of a multi-dose inhaler that patients puff directly into your mouth and then try to swallow. That's probably not the easiest thing for everybody to do. And I'd love to get Chris's take on this, especially for kids. Um, but I can tell you right now, my adult population, it's convenient because you can carry it around. You do anywhere from 440 to 880 micrograms twice a daily. Um, and then you can rescope these patients. Um, but it is definitely something that Patients have to kind of get used to, to learn how to swallow that and you need to make sure that you're swallowing it appropriately to optimize that efficacy of the drug. The other option that is out there that people use is the viscous budesonide. And that is kind of mixed with a thickener, and it's swallowed. And the data has come out like with Evan Dellen did some data looking at this compared to nebulized treatment. And definitely it looks like the viscous formulation may work better than a nebulized or inhaled formulation, at least gets more surface area contact. And so that probably results in better Um, administration and possibly better efficacy, although Evan Evandelen did do a randomized controlled trial comparing the two. And again, both of these can be used for maintenance therapy. The thought is that for the majority of patients, EOE is a chronic disease, and there's been some nice literature out there in the pediatric world where they've followed patients long term and find that definitely the symptoms are persistent, that the symptoms recur when treatment is stopped. And that ongoing maintenance therapy, maintenance therapy should be considered in all patients, but at the very least, you know, we should follow these patients pretty consistently. We definitely wanna consider this ongoing maintenance therapy in our patients, especially the pediatric patients that are starting early with this chronic remodeling, food impactions, severe symptoms, or definitely when they stop the therapy, the return of the symptoms come back quickly. And I think that we might be a little more of a challenge in the pediatric world where the symptoms maybe are a little more vague than they are in the adult world where we can definitely follow like trouble swallowing or chest pain or chest burning, where I think you pediatric GIs are having to deal with probably a myriad of symptoms that we in the adult world don't have to deal with quite as often. We do need more data, though, on long-term outcomes and maintenance therapy. And I know that that is a very um, interest area, a strong area of interest in the pediatric world, because, of course, you don't want to leave anyone on a therapy that in long-term could harm them. So what we do in the adult world is definitely, we can address esophageal dilation. And I think that's becoming more and more common. And I'd love to get Chris's take on this in the pediatric world, because we definitely have the guidelines that say that we can address the dysphagia with esophageal strictures associated with the UE by doing dilations. But what we have to remember is even though we give them maybe symptomatic relief, we're not necessarily dealing with the other two domains of giving them, maybe we're partially helping their endoscopic appearance, but we aren't necessarily getting rid of the eosinophilia So we leave the inflammation behind, which then continues to cause remodeling and stricturing again in our patients. The other thing we have to take in consideration when we're doing these dilations is that there is a higher risk of perforation. It's not common, but it is there. Again that I mentioned doesn't address address the underlying inflammatory process. And then these patients have a lot of post-procedural pain. So you have to be prepared to counsel them, warn them, and be able to treat that pain accordingly. So moving on to what the guidelines are, now we get to start talking about all these new and upcoming therapies that are being studied in EOE. And some of these are biologic therapies and some are gonna actually move into small molecules. But to understand kind of where these therapies are coming about and why we're thinking about these therapies, the main thing to understand about the pathophysiology of EOE is that what happens is that we ingest these antigens, these food antigens, and they have contact with their esophageal epithelium, and these alarmins, what's called alarmins, get secreted, IL33, TSLP, and they start recruiting in um, TH2 cytokines, regulatory factors that then send out signals to recruit in eosinophils and mast cells. They send out further Th2-mediated signals to start increasing inflammation and permeability. And those signals that are commonly identified in this disease are TGF-beta, IL-4, IL-13, and IL-5. So because of this, because these signals then lead to downstream effects that then cause epithelial permeability and eosinophilic inflammation, and then remodeling and stricturing. These are the areas that we're focusing on, and a lot of biologic therapies are focusing on in treating our eosinophilic patients. So why would we want biologics? Well, the data really suggests that there are a subset of EOE patients that actually are corticosteroid refractory, meaning they don't respond to the steroids or they're, they're intolerant of these corticosteroids. Um, The other thing that we have to think about, so that's biologics will fit well into that category of these patients that cannot take corticosteroids or definitely don't respond to them. And then biologics might be indicated for these patients when we start looking at personalized medicine who have highly atopic phenotypes and that they they can target these allergic pathways. So like Amal was saying earlier, when you have a patient, they see an allergist and they have eczema and they have allergies and they have atopic asthma, these are all biologics that potentially could be used to treat multiple different disease processes at one time. And then biologics have this potential benefit of remodeling. By decreasing that inflammation in a systemic manner, we could potentially really prevent a lot of the stricturing and the fibrosis. And the one thing that that may be really beneficial, especially in our younger patients or like our adolescent to young adult patients is that it's difficult for compliance to therapy. So there's sometimes benefits to actually having something you take once a month, once a week, rather than having to remember to take twice a day, carry it around with you. So potentially biologics can offer enhanced compliance to our our patients. Okay, so the AGA and Joint Task Force guidelines actually came out discussing biologics in the management of EOE. And basically what they came out saying is that anti-IGE therapies, there's conditional low evidence, low quality evidence recommendations against using those like omalizumab, and the treatment of EOE. It has not been shown to reduce the eosinophilia. And then all the other biologic therapies that phys- that make sense in a physiologic me- way anti-IL-5s, anti-IL-13s. They basically say you actually have to consider that in the context of a clinical trial right now until further data is out. But we'll discuss some of the data that has been public or is out in the public domain right now. And then other biologic therapies such as um monoleucase, chromolin, anti-TNFs, again, can only be considered in context of in a clinical trial for our patients. Dupilumab is an interesting biologic that's currently being studied for the treatment of eosinophilic esophagitis. And it's a fascinating molecule because it actually is an anti-IL-4 receptor alpha antibody, which actually works two different ways. It works both on a type one receptor, while IL-4 does its work in in basically recruiting and activating B cells and T cells, monocytes, eosinophils, but it also works on IL-13 receptor and the receptor alpha where it actually combines with that alpha chain so it blocks some of the ability of il-13 to work on this type 2 receptor so it works in two different ways it's already approved in the united states for the treatment of moderate to severe atopic dermatitis in ages six and above and severe asthma ages six and above and then in older adults with chronic rhinosinusitis. and it's been granted breakthrough therapy designation for EOE by the fda so the the phase A and C results are out with the most recent trial in dupilumab, where it actually was shown in long-term therapy, up to about 52 weeks of therapy. So the initial randomized controlled trial in Parts A, where they randomized weekly dupilumab injections to placebo, and then the Part C, where they went out for week 52, so those that had been on placebo then went into a dupilumab arm. They showed that basically in both result in part A and part C that there was a significant reduction in dysphagia. If you look at the dysphagia symptom questionnaire uh, at both week 24, but then if you also look on this graph on the right-hand side, that orange bar that shows a reduction in dysphagia even in the placebo arm at week 24 definitely then equalizes with really significant reduction by week 52 once those patients went into the dupilumab. Open arm in the phase C study. And again, you can see the same thing on the right hand. This is just the percent change in the dysphagia symptom questionnaire. So it shows that over time, the Dupilumab definitely made a significant difference in symptoms of dysphagia in the patients that were on this during this randomized controlled trial. The other thing in this trial that they looked at is they looked at peak intraepithelial eosinophil counts. And again, these are, it's kind of a busy slide because there are a lot of graphs here that I wanna talk about. But basically the proportion of patients by FDA guidelines that that actually achieved a peak eosinophil count less than six, if you look at the far right graph in the first two columns, the orange one is the placebo. So less than about 10% of patients actually reached this endpoint. And then that dark blue line was about a little over 60% of the patients in the dupilumab arm actually reached that endpoint. And if you look again in part C where they then let all these patients go into the dupilumab arm, you find that that placebo arm then resulted in significant reduction in eosinophilia by week 52 once they went on the medication. Another way to look at this is you can look at it less than than 15 eosinophils, and that's the middle graph. And again, you can see the difference between that orange bar and then gradually as the patients went on dupilumab achievement in this less than 15 eosinophils per high power field. And then the far right graph is just showing you basically How the percent of reduction. So how that peak in eosinophil count reduced in the Dupilumab arm and all the blue bars. So the far left blue bar is showing you at the 24 weeks. And then the light blue and dark blue bar are showing you at the 52 week mark as compared to the one that you can barely see, which is the placebo, where basically placebo didn't make a significant change in the peak eosinophil count. Another way to look at this is we talked also about looking at histologic features. So the histologic severity index. And basically what this is, is this is looking at a constellation of ways to look at your biopsies. Do you have basal hyperplasia, exudates, um, dyskeratotic epithelial cells? And so they wanted to look at the changes of how abnormal the tissue looked in this. And what they found is that there was a significant change in the score on the patients who went into the dupilumab arm that was significant at 24 weeks. And then again, sustained into 52 weeks in part C. And again, they looked on the right-hand side to the extent of that change. So was it only in one biopsy or in several areas? And they found that again, it seemed to encompass a larger area compared to the placebo arm. And Then we talked about when we look at resolution in our patients, we want to look at endoscopic features. So again, dupilumab, the study looked at resolution of endoscopic features of EOE, like the EREF score. At week 24, dupilumab had a significant reduction in the EREF score, meaning that there were fewer um, signs of inflammation and of EOE being active in in the patients that had been on dupilumab, and again, sustained that out to 52 weeks while patients were maintained on the drug. And again, we wanna know every time that we do a biologic, whether that biologic is tolerated and whether it's safe. And so if you look at this graph here, this basically shows you the safety data from the part A and the part C of the study. And there's not significant differences in injection site reactions or um, significant adverse events on dupilumab. Um, The one thing that was definitely, there was a dupilumab, uh, some abdominal pain at one point, and then some arthralgias that were reported But if you look down at that 10% of it occurring in 10, greater than 10% of any group, really it was just injection site reactions that occurred both in the placebo and the dupilumab arm, nasopharyngitis, injection site erythema, headache, and rash that were reported. So we talked about the IL-4 alpha receptor antibody dupilumab, and syndacumab is actually an IL-13. So it works on how IL-13 will then attach both to the receptor alpha one and two. And so it works both through that one receptor inhibiting that signaling of IL-13, and then also through the other receptor on, on the receptor alpha-2. And this is a recombinant humanized monoclonal antibody that is very selective for IL-13, and it's administered as a, a weekly injection. So patients get weekly injections of this medication. And they did have a randomized controlled trial of this where they actually enrolled about 99 patients, and they're all adults to about 16 weeks of therapy. And the primary endpoint was a change in the mean eosinophil uh, count in the esophagus. What they found is if you look at that graph, the placebo arm again is in the orange and it shows not really a significant change in eosinophils in the esophagus. But if you look at both the low and the high dose of syndacamab, you can see that there was significant reduction in eosinophils in the esophagus. The right-hand graph shows, again, endoscopic changes. So did the actual endoscopy look better in these patients? And again, you can see not much change in the placebo arm, but definitely statistically significant reduction in evidence of eosinophilic disease in both the low and the high dose sindacimab arms. What's really interesting about this, and I know that there's things that probably we should discuss about this, is that actually the secondary point, which is a change in the symptom score, if you look at the overall population, you see a large difference between the high dose, which is that bottom line on the graph on the left-hand side, and in the higher dose syndacamamarb, that's kind of borderline statistically significant. But if you look at that steroid refractory group, the people that didn't respond to steroids, again, it seems to be much of a, a higher difference between the high dose group and the low dose group and placebo. And again, borderline, bordering on statistical significance. So something to be interested in is like, how is the dysphagia maybe improving? Is there something that has to do with the remodeling that gets better? And it's definitely something for us to think about, although we don't have any answers yet. And again, we did show in an open label extension in this trial, I shouldn't say we, but they showed in the open label extension of this trial that syndacamib was effective at actually keeping the eosinophil count low, even in the open label extension. And you can see this as evidenced by this graph here, both the low and the high dose levels of syndacamib kept the esophageal eosinophil count down. Finally, I'm just gonna mention lirantilamab. This is an anti-cyclic eight antibody. So cyclic eight, when it actually this antibody when it attaches to cyclic or binds cyclic eight, it causes eosinophil apoptosis and potentially has some effects on mast cell neutralization. It does not have data currently in eosinophilic esophagitis, but it has phase two results in adults where it was studied in eosinophilic gastritis and duodenitis or those that had both of this. And really what this graph shows is it shows how the symptoms in these patients got better over time. And so that as these patients were kept on lirantilimab, their symptoms improved over time and continued to improve while they were kept on the medication. So I know this is kind of a brief overview, and, but these are all these agents that are coming out with the data that at least has been publicly released so far. What we also know that is out there that there's data and some other, um, other uh, papers that are out that we could talk about and studies that have been reported out is that there's the budesonide oral suspension. There's BOT, which is this oral dispersible tab um, for budesonide that's been studied over in Europe. There's options for a fluticasone um, oral-dispersable tablet, and that has finished phase 3 trials. There's a new sphingosine 1-phosphate receptor uh, modulator, and it works on the receptor 1, 4, and 5, and it's called a tracimod, and that's in phase 2 trials right now for eosinophilic esophagitis. There's also a phase 2 trial in mepolizumab, so that's a drug that actually directly inhibits IL-5. And then also an ongoing trial in benralism and eosinophilic esophagitis. And that basically is again, anti-IL-5 by inhibiting that receptor. I wanna thank you guys for listening to me. Thanks, Chris.
1: Thank you, Dr. Peterson. It's a perfect outline for uh, the audience to get an idea of what the potential is uh, with regard to these biologics that hopefully will be approved in the near future. Um, a couple of questions, if that's okay. Sure. Um, You know, obviously, we have some therapies already that seem to be effective. Um, What do you think and when would you consider, let's say, hypothetically, biologics are approved tomorrow?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: When would you think about using a biologic in a patient
3: So that's a great question. And honestly, I just had that happen to me today where I had a patient coming in, newly diagnosed EOE, but in the conversation with with discussing this patient's symptoms found out severe asthma had been off and on like oral steroids for their asthma alone. So, you know, Really, I think there's these phenotypes that we have to start looking at being gastroenterologists, where we should take in the big picture, where it's not just you know does our patient have a GI symptom, but do they have like severe eczema? Do they have uh, severe asthma? Food allergies? Where you can partner with an allergist, and maybe consider thinking, well, let's try to treat these patients with a drug that should theoretically or is FDA approved for these other indications. And I think that's where we're going to start finding a lot of our biologic, um, that kind of niche for our biologic therapies are in these kind of like kind of atopic patients, patients that are, you know, intolerant to topical steroids, or I have a couple patients that are type one diabetics that just cannot, they just don't want to take the risk with those topical steroids. And I, you know, I can't blame them necessarily. So I think that those are kind of the areas where we'll be working. Um, we're going to have our hands forced a little bit, um, and, uh, you know, where, you know, we're not going to be able to necessarily just be like, Hey, I'm going to do a biologic therapy. Probably insurance will dictate some of that, but we definitely have, I'm sure some really refractory stenotic patients that we would love just to straight start it on. But I, I think, you know, ultimately they'll have to fail steroids first.
1: Well, and your, your mention of phenotypes was a perfect kind of segue into my next question. I mean, I think you're exactly right. If you have a patient that has multiple eosinophilic or atopic disorders. It's a perfect, these are perfect probably drugs to use to hopefully treat all these conditions. However, what do you think though, when you have mainly EOE or possibly other eosinophilic GI diseases, there's probably phenotypes for each of those, you know, some that respond to PPI, some that respond to diet, some that respond to... Do you think that there'll be specific biologics for each one of those? Or do you think that most biologics will hit everything... Sure, yes.
3: No, I think that we'll end up eventually. I don't think I'm smart enough yet, um, and you probably could answer this better than I could, but I, I don't think, I think eventually we'll be able to get an idea on our patients of like this is the one that Dupilumab would work best or Syndacumab or their entilimab based on their mechanism of action and what we, pr- the more we know about these other concurrent, you know, uh, comorbid conditions, uh, you know, more systemic a disease, food allergy, as Amal was saying, you know, the more we'll hopefully be able to tailor that. I think right now, um, you know, we know that, you know, these drugs aren't, I mean, looking at the data that I just presented, the biologics are not going to be 100% or even 95% on, on everybody. Um, but if you asked me right now and you said, well, can you point out which one you would do this one on and this one on, I'd say, I don't think so. <laughs> but um, but I, I try, I think we'll get there eventually, Yeah.
1: And then you also mentioned, my, kind of my last question, you mentioned briefly that we, we as physicians may be driven by other outside sources of when we can or can't use these. Do you think, kind of in your mind, are we gonna, is it gonna be that if we get away with, or can get away with topical steroids or diet or whatever, that'll still be likely the first line therapy in many of these cases?
3: I think I, I'll be honest, I think so yes, I think yes because I think that until more data comes out with you know health uh, related economics and the burden, of of disease on these patients, you know, the, if you if you take like inflammatory bowel disease in a, as an example, like they're showing, you know, surgeries are reduced with anti TNFs, blah blah blah. So we're moving slowly along that. You know, we've moved slowly along that line to say, okay, well, we understand certain, you know, certain types of patients, you know, we want to reduce the surgeries because they're highly expensive and healthcare utilization is expensive. I think initially with not. Having that data, and I'd love to get your take on this too. But I think not having that data, um, we probably will be fairly limited by insurance. But as that data starts to accumulate, if registries are done or we follow patients prospectively and look at the the healthcare costs, I think eventually we hopefully will start to be able to convince payers. You know, like, hey, this is this kind of a presentation, and they'll do better on a biologic therapy.
1: Terrific. Perfect. Again, I think presentation for the audience to get a good, get their feet wet with some of the maybe new emerging therapies that are going to play a role in this disease. Thanks again. Thanks for having me. So again, I want to thank my guests for some terrific uh, information. Um, And now I'm going to pick their brain a little bit further with regard to some clinical cases and kind of really practical um, application of how to deal with you know, in the, in the guidelines that you see, there's information, but each of us who take care of these patients have kind of their own way to do things. And what I'm hoping to provide with the next um, several cases is an idea of how we all might approach things. And, and all three of us may approach things a little differently, and we'll, we'll try to draw up that discussion. So in the first case, I want to talk about it. It really, I, I'm bringing this case up really to think about the AGREE guidelines that were put together about three or four years ago where people discussed how having or being able to make the diagnosis of EOE kind of directly and without um, use of PPI therapy and things like that initially, which were in previous guidelines. And I just want to give you an idea of some of the difficulties we face in Pediatrics, and I, I actually think some difficulties that are faced in the adult world, but not really yet seen. What I mean by that is, you know, it's pretty easy to diagnose an EOE patient when they present with a terrible dysphagia, food impaction, strictures, narrowing, trouble swallowing. It's a lot harder to diagnose patients when they have symptoms that aren't that drastic. And as we've heard, the earlier we can diagnose people, the better. So let's just start with this case and see kind of where we get. So if, if there's an eight-year-old boy who has symptoms of vomiting and epigastric pain that has gotten worse over the f- past few years um, and, have a, and has had no prior treatment, has a history of also allergic rhinitis and maybe an IgE food allergy to nuts and um, uh, other um, peanuts type of foods, Kind of what would what would we do? What would you do at this point? I'm just gonna first. I have my ideas, but let me first leave it up to uh, Amal and Kathy to see what they would do with this kind of patient.
2: Yes, that's that's a great case, and it's actually not uncommon case. And I would say that this patient uh, exemplifies the delay in in diagnosis because he's had the symptoms for a little while. It's really not normal. For an eight-year-old or six-year-old to keep vomiting and have complaints of stomach ache, it's just not normal. And once this is picked up, you know, picked up, then this patient really needs an endoscopy and uh, to make the diagnosis. So I would start with an endoscopy to make the diagnosis in this patient.
1: Now, Kathy, if I told you, again, this is, we're talking about kids, you're an adult gastroenterologist, but let's say I told you this is a 25-year-old who had epigastric pain pretty much the last three, four years, symptoms of reflux, maybe occasional vomiting. How would you treat those kind of patients?
3: So, you know, I think a lot of the times in the adult world, we will go, there's an expectation, you know, when somebody comes to clinic to, to leave with something, and um, so there's two things that happen to us. One is, in, if we saw them in clinic, I think most of us would probably start a PPI on them, um, and not just scope them immediately. In part, just if we see bad esophagitis, then they're already, you know, destined to another endoscopy. Um, but then we try to wean the PPI. But then also, as uh, since we do open access cases where you know people just put them on our schedule, um, and you know a primary care, they they come often already on a PPI. But I would say probably often we will put them on a PPI before we scope them.
1: So I bring this and in, uh, neither of neither of what has been said so far is wrong. Obviously, you know mm-hmm. there's different ways to skin a cat. Uh, I I ten, I'm still a big believer in the old classic eoe where we diagnosed it because people failed therapy and we had nothing left and that's what we found was the problem and most of the time it was foods that were driving the the hour aller, the uh, allergen driven histology so i commonly do the same thing I, i'll treat you know i may even do an upper gi just to make sure in kids we worry about things like malrotation and, and, and anatomic problems but when i when i after I rule that out, I think about treating these patients possibly for reflux or some kind of acid-driven disease. And then if either they fail or even if they are successful, but eventually I can't get them off that medicine, yeah. all I'm a scope. what For me, what that does is, I mean, with what, with what Dr. Assad said is absolutely not wrong. The only problem that sometimes I have with that is, let's say we find eosinophils well, then I might put them on a PPI anyhow. Now I have to do two scopes instead of maybe one. I got lucky with just finding out what was going on to begin with, and they may have responded to a PPI, and I never had to do anything else beside that. So it's it's good. What I'm getting at is, it's a matter for the clinician to decide how they want to approach things and what they want to do. As long as you're thinking about things, that's that's the important thing. And so these kind of patients could have reflux. They could have. H. biloria, they could have, you know, who knows what they have. And the question becomes is it worth putting them on doing something initially and then in getting to an endoscopy later or not? I mean, obviously, when people present with dysphagia and food impaction and strictures or whatever, they're going to go right to the endoscopy almost always. But this is where it gets a little more kind of hedgy. Yeah. Um, I
2: think, yeah. so
1: question, go
2: sorry, go ahead.
3: Oh no! I was just going to say the risk that the risk that Chris and I take, or Dr. Leah Corriss and I take, sorry, um, is that that they feel better and then they're lost to the follow up, and then they stop their PPI and everything comes back again, right? Or or they feel better, they get scoped, they're negative, and then they, you know, whoever scopes them doesn't warn them that if they stop their PPI. you know, so there's. We, that, I mean, I, I, when you asked me that question, I was like, oh, I don't really want to answer that because I feel like you could go either way. I mean, there's really good.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, uh, Catherine said a little bit of what I wanted to say, but really in this story and the natural history of EOE is that it goes undiagnosed for several years and then after you do something to make it better and make the patient feel better. And I've found that by experience that whatever you do, the first thing you do, patients feel better because they've been for two three years having the symptoms and nobody's doing anything about it. Once you do something, they feel better, but don't forget that this is a chronic disease. So if you give them a PPI and they feel better, and as Kathleen said, they'll, be lost to follow-up but you haven't treated the histopathology so uh, that's why i would go first to diagnosis so we know what we're dealing with obviously there is a lot of differential diagnosis in a uh, eight-year-old uh, who is vomiting and having abdominal pain especially for a male for a boy and uh, but but at the same time you is actually on top of my list because of the vomiting. He's not complaining of heartburn. He's complaining of vomiting. And it is, like I said, it's a specific kind of vomiting where they just, all of a sudden they just throw up and then they go about their business. So uh, that's why I would not, you know, mess with PPIs and otherwise. Now, once I have a diagnosis, maybe I would go to PPIs and then rely on symptoms uh, for a little bit, or maybe then I would go to a diet to an EOE diet, uh, that all will be uh, in discussion with the family, with the patient themselves, what would they want to do, what's their preference, and go from there.
1: This is why I said this gets – and especially when you read the guidelines, it doesn't really tell you that you're going to have these kind of options to think about, and and every practice is a little different. Like in my practice, I see tons of kids with reflux at this age – who can't understand what heartburn is, and they this is how they present, and it's hard to get their symptoms of heartburn out of them just because they don't know what that really means. But I think what I'm hearing, and I'm hopefully I think we all agree, you can't lose these patients no matter what we do. I mean, you have to follow them up. We're a little luckier in pediatrics because we have a parent who can hopefully bring them back to us. A little more difficult in young adults and adults who I know, I'm one of them myself, you know, you start treating yourself and feeling better, do you, you want to go back to the doctor or not? But we're a little luckier in kids. Yeah. Um, so either way, I think follow-up is huge. Um, and then um, what, what I wanted to, the final thing I wanted to ask if we're gonna use PPIs, and this is a kind of a point of contention among a lot of people, how, how aggressive, Kathy, do you treat them with PPI? How, how high a dose do you use?
3: So I know you do weight based. We I I will give them the equivalent of like 40 of a meprazole. I I don't go higher that often. I I'm not comfortable with that for some reason. I don't know why. I just not and I um I have nothing to back it up. But I uh, I will go 40 and then if yeah.
1: Yeah, so I again, I'm I'm one who commonly pushes it. Not not forever. I mean, obviously I don't want to ever have somebody on medicine for 20 years. That's a huge dose, but I'll go forty twice a day and big kids, you know, adult-sized kids, if I have to, just so I get that first endoscopy to know did it really do anything or not? Because I always wonder sometimes if I get an endoscopy that has you know twenty-five eosinophils and they're on and they're a you know two hundred-pound kid, right? I'll give them enough, you know. That's the hard part. You never quite know. And I, I still haven't found. And people argue with me all the time. I haven't found any information that. That aggressive dose for a short time is going to hurt anybody, but but it is you know it is a high dose, so you have to think about that when you're using it.
2: But Chris, if you do uh, the high dose PPI, and then you get an endoscopy and everything looks great, yeah. well, I guess we'll the real question is ahead. what do you do after so then, that?
1: Yeah. So then my goal is, and and hopefully they're feeling better. That they should have no symptoms then, also. Then I try to reduce it. Then I go to once a day and I see what happens. And if they still feel fine, I keep cutting it. And sometimes these patients just had reflux and they got better and I'm done. But if their symptoms come back and now I do an endoscopy on less of a dose and they have eosinophils, then I can decide what, how I want to do I want to change my therapy or do something different. So I always cut, I don't stick with it twice a day, I, I eventually cut it.
2: So you still have done two endoscopies to get to the diagnosis?
1: If if I did the first one. Sometimes I don't even have to do the first one. I put them on high dose. They get better. I try to stop it. They never get worse. I don't have to do any endoscopies.
2: But symptoms don't correlate with histopathology.
1: But they do if you have reflux. Remember, this patient, we don't know yet what he has.
2: Yeah, but this patient doesn't have reflux. He vomits.
1: How do you know that? Well, you don't know what he has.
2: That's what you have in the case.
1: Oh, but what I'm telling you, Amal, is I see tons of kids with vomiting that have reflux.
2: But maybe you're missing EOE.
1: No, because those kids, I eventually do a scope if they stay on reflux medicine and they don't have eosinophils. Okay. See, I guess the point is, is EOE really an acid? And this is where the big controversy, this is where your slides about the dilemma about PPIs comes in what is really true EOE? And Kath, we, we, we have discussions about this and arguments all the time of
0: yeah.
1: international groups. I'm still a big believer in EOE is truly a food-based antigen-driven disease. And we know now that PPIs can have other properties that may hit some of the pathways with regard to eosinophilia and all those other things. But that's the hard part, which ones are truly that, which ones are truly acid-driven, because in the 80s, there were people who showed that eosinophils came about just with acid-based disease. Maybe not to the the degree of large numbers, but definitely happens.
2: But that, uh, I mean, this is, I don't know if we need to get into all this, but it's where the eosinophilia is, is it's on the upper part of the esophagus, the lower part of the esophagus, yeah. yeah, people have
1: actually shown that that doesn't I mean distal eosinophilia is prevalent in EOE just as much as reflux. So that it really hasn't been shown to be the the way to figure it out.
3: It seems like a lot of what drives our decision making is the fact that we have to do an endoscopy every time, right? So yeah. it seems like when you, it sounds like with to me, Chris, that a lot of Your decision making is to try to limit the endoscopies. And so you're you're looking at quality of life and symptoms, and you know, it's okay here and there to to have something that you know you take a little bit of a gamble on to try to limit those endoscopies, which I I can I can totally support in children because I have three of them. And but I think that uh like in adults, I think, you know, we, if people are able to afford it, we're like, well, we're going to make this change and then we're going to scope you and we're going to make this (laughs) change and we're going to scope you. So it's a little bit different. So like Amal, I I understand what you're saying. I think like for us, it's, you know, even if the PPI covers the symptoms, we will scope, I think much like, I think if you look at the data and adult, you know, adult gastroenterologists are you know, much more free about putting people through endoscopies than than pediatric. But, you know, it's- Yeah, it's I do not say it
1: that way either because if, if in two months I can't reduce their medicine, I'll scope them. So I'm not going to give them like two years. I'm going to give them just a few months and see if I can reduce whatever I have them on.
3: Yeah.
1: And then I'm going to scope them. But just I just wanted to bring that case up because there's, there's going to be different people who do things differently. But as long as I think what we're all saying is follow them up, You need a scope at some point to make sure you know what's going on, especially if you either continue to have symptoms or continue to be on medicines that you can't get off of. You need to figure out what's really going on. What about a patient who definitely has EOE, teenage boy, who was treated with topical corticosteroids, symptoms went away, tissue improved, endoscopy looked good, Then all of a sudden, as Kathy mentioned before, now you lose them because they're doing so well. And they come back two or three years later, and actually this patient comes back and tells you they stopped the medicine, but there's no symptoms, the kid feels fine. What would you do at this point?
3: I'd ask them all if she was treating them with a biologic.
1: (laughs) No treatment with anything. (laughs) I "I feel fine. Why do I take medicine? There's no reason for me to do it. We fixed it. I came back because I just thought I should come back.
2: I would scope him. So go ahead. I'm I'm sorry. I was going to just ask Chris, what were the symptoms this 14 year old presented with before? Huh?
1: The the, the original symptoms.
2: Yeah. What are the original symptoms? Because if you presented... If he had presented yeah, with-
1: Difficulty swallowing.
2: Yeah. So-
1: has it again, supposedly.
2: Yeah, yeah. So so this suggests that he might have a stricture or a fibo- fibrostenotic esophagus. And definitely, I mean, I would agree with Catherine that I would definitely scope him to make sure that we're not missing histopathology because those patients- I mean, he would have gone 14 years or maybe 12 years with no symptoms and then they present with the obstruction. So you don't want to miss this one uh, regarding diagnosis. And if he does have uh, a stricture and uh, you could restart topical steroids, of course, if he responded to them initially. Uh, But if if it has progressed, uh, I would consider diet, which may or may not be very acceptable to a teenager, uh, but maybe just do a one-food elimination diet, um, and then definitely, if I would look into how the, bad the asthma is, how bad the eczema is, and possibly use a um, you know uh, dupilumab or something that would treat the asthma and the eczema, even though it's not you know recommended yet or approved for EOE, it may be the way to go because we have some preliminary data of its effectiveness.
1: So I think what I'm hearing from both of you is you, you would not do nothing. You, right. don't, you think it's important to at least find out what's going on if possible. You, you, Amal, mentioned in your talk that symptoms don't always correlate with the disease. So this patient could certainly have disease and just doesn't feel like there's symptoms that are going along with it. or for whatever reason, a teenage boy, an adult, just is ignoring the symptoms either way. Exactly. But it sounds like we need to make sure we know what's going on. Correct.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So I think that that's, that's absolutely, I think important to make sure the audience knows that we, we wouldn't sit on somebody just because they say that they feel fine, especially knowing that they had a problem that responded to whatever treatment we decided to give before. Mm-hmm. If, if they came back to you and were on, told you, oh, you know what? I just decided to that I wanted to go reduce my medicine in half. I'm still on it, but I'm taking half the medicine. What would you do at that point? Anything different? Would you just do a scope and see if you got lucky and half half a dose is working? Would you put it back up and then see?
3: I, I would scope them at the half dose if they, even if, if they were asymptomatic and stayed asymptomatic, I'd still want to confirm that endoscopically they looked fine. And that, and again, you know, and that histologically everything looked resolved. And again, it just comes down to, again, what Amal said is, you know, we, we just can't trust the symptoms. And so we just hate to have something progress, you know, over time to when they finally are symptomatic, it's a significant problem.
1: So I asked that question only because we're all given these doses to start with of Mm -hmm. whatever medicine and whatever diet we're going to do well, if it's four foods, if it's two foods, if it's six, whatever it is. And if patients come back to you and say they feel fine, is it okay to try to reduce the doses or add foods to see how lucky we get or how little we need to treat a disease?
2: So, I mean, we have shown in a, in a paper that was published in the past about natural history that the longer you have the follow-up, the more likely you're going to see recurrence of the disease histologically. So if this patient has been gone for several years, I would still want to know that he doesn't have histologic problems or or pathology in there. And then I would consider the doses that we want to put him on. uh, If it's half a dose, if it's still effective or not, because the symptoms are not gonna help us.
1: So you would put that patient back on the original dose and then do a scope and see where they are.
2: No, I could I could scope him on the dose he's on. Okay. And see if that really is uh, right. treating the the histopathology. Right. Uh, yeah. But so you're but became,
1: again yeah. possibly having less of a dose if it's if it's working. If you prove it's working.
2: Yes. Right. Okay. That's correct.
1: Good. Well, thank you both. I think um, at least I brought up hopefully some interesting points for the audience. I really appreciate your input. Um, Again, I think it just proves that this is not kind of cookbook medicine. You still have to think about what you're doing and know what's going on and make sure that you have an idea of how to diagnose and treat and follow these patients as, as closely as you can. So thanks again.
2: Thank you. Thank you, Catherine and Chris. I learned a lot as usual. As did I.
1: <laughs> so I'd like to conclude with a brief, um, uh, some brief remarks uh, to let you take home uh, some of the uh, ideas and comments that you heard throughout this uh, talk show. Uh, so basically remember this as you return to your practices and patience. Remember, it's easy to suspect EOE in patients with dysphagia and food impaction, but it's also, you must consider, and it's more difficult to suspect EOE in patients with a chronic history of vomiting, reflux symptoms, epigastric abdominal pain, unusual feeding behavior, failure to thrive or poor weight gain, and other feeding abnormalities, not only in kids, but in young adults. In many cases, you should still think about using PPI therapy to treat esophageal eosinophilia or esophageal symptoms before knowing that EOE is definitely um, uh, present. Once EOE is diagnosed, we currently want to treat with either dietary restriction or topical swallowed steroids. Remember that symptoms and histology don't always correlate. You can have disease in your esophagus and almost no symptoms and you can say you have significant symptoms and minimal disease histologically. Right now, the gold standard is EGD with biopsy, and it's the only current diagnostic tool we have to be able to to assess this disease and assess histologic esophageal eosinophilia. And remember, biologic treatment is on the horizon, so we will have different approaches and different therapies available in the near future. So finally, to conclude and summarize, EOE is a clinical pathologic disease. You need symptoms and tissue disease to make a diagnosis, and it continues to increase in worldwide incidence and prevalence. The diagnostic criteria have been updated in the more recent AGREE recommendations, and although the recommendations uh, state that a PPI trial is no longer mandatory, you still as physicians need to think about the possible reasons for eosinophilia in the esophagus and that either reflux or PPI-driven esophageal disease could exist. The diagnosis is made with the appropriate symptoms in the setting of large numbers of eosinophils greater than 15 in the esophagus with no other contributing cause. And that symptom evaluation should carefully consider that the symptoms and eating behaviors can be different at different ages, infants, teenagers, young adults, and uh, older adults. And finally, it's a progressive disease uh, it usually um, moves from inflammation to a fibrotic disease uh, in many patients, but not all patients. And that the diagnosis and ongoing therapy is really critical to help reduce and prevent complications. I'd like, I'd like to thank the audience for participating in this um, talk show. I hope you learned um, uh, information enough to change or at least um, contribute to the practice of treating EOE patients um, clinically. Uh, and uh, as you see, more and more information is being processed uh, almost on a monthly basis so that uh, the diagnosis and management of EOE continues to be updated um, kind of as we speak.
0: This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash FTS 860. This activity is supported by an independent medical education grant from Regeneron Pharmaceuticals Incorporated and Sanofi Genzyme.